Welcome to the Rounds to Residency podcast, brought to you by Med School Coach. Each episode, get clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships and residency in healthcare. We interview preceptors and physician educators who will prepare you for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Now, here's your host, Chase DeMarco. Nisha Mehta is a radiologist, keynote speaker, and physician advocate who works to focus on the changing culture in medicine. She is also the founder of Physician Sidegigs and the Physician Community. Through these communities, she hopes to bring physicians together to talk about issues not conventionally discussed among physicians. Nisha, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Chase. I'm really excited to be here. You're working on so many different things, so many different projects. You have these Facebook groups. You have a lot of speaking, like you said, keynote speaking that you do. I kind of want to just explore a little bit more. What are you currently doing in medicine and medical education to better the field? Yeah, I know it's a little bit scattered in terms of the different hats I wear. I think even I have a hard time concisely kind of putting off what it is that I do exactly. But, you know, the overarching theme of my work is really to try to change the culture of medicine and to try to ensure that we set up systems in place that allow each physician to thrive as an individual. And I think that conventionally so much of the system, whether it be medical education or whether it be later stages in our careers has been so like, it's just been this formula, right? You decide one day that you're pre-med and then somehow the rest of your life is just mapped out for you in terms of all the major steps. And yeah, you've got some choices, you know, you can pick where you want to do residency or where you want to go to medical school or which field you're going to apply in. But really that pathway is very, very set. And that actually continues into being an attending. And I think that a lot of us try really hard to fit these stereotypes and fit inside this box. And I think that really, when you start looking at all of the challenges in the healthcare landscape currently, that it really is going to require a lot of us to be a lot more intentional about our pathways and really think about what it is that's going to enhance career longevity for us, as opposed to what enhanced career longevity or what brought satisfaction to the person whose portrait is hanging in our medical school hallway. And so I think that that is really the focus of my work in terms of saying, hey, it's okay for us to be who we want to be outside of medicine. And there are ways that we can find to align that with who we want to be professionally as well. And it really just requires some intention in our pathway and really looking at, you know, what are our deal breakers? What are the things that are taking away from our career longevity and how do we maximize the things that are contributing to our career longevity and maximize the things that we love about the heart of medicine in that process such that we're able to do this for the 20, 30 years. Yeah, you hear so much for the past few years actually about physician burnout, even student burnout. Now a lot of attention is being paid to physician side gigs or planning for more than just your clinical practice that you probably were only thinking about pre-med, early med school. So these groups are very useful to really help students plan ahead as well, which is why I think it's important to tackle this subject for this particular audience. Yeah, I mean, I think, don't get me wrong, I don't think that every physician needs a side gig. I know it's a very exciting idea to a lot of people, but I don't necessarily think that that's true. I think that for me in my own life, it's added to dimensions in my work that have allowed me to enhance my own career longevity and have given me some more options and opened up doors that They keep things really exciting for me. So it's been the right pathway for me. I don't necessarily think that you need to start thinking about your side gig from day one. I think it's really important to focus on your education early on and make sure that you're becoming the best doctor that you can be and then allowing that pathway 
to evolve from there and take the route that you want it to take. So physician side gigs is not just about developing a side gig, even though that's the name of the group. We've really evolved a lot since the group was created. And now a lot of my focus is also just on basic business and finance education, which I do feel like we need a whole lot more of during our training. And I think that you look at physicians who are coming out of training these days, so many of them have so much student loan burden and so many of them feel so ill-equipped to run a business. And so a lot of them will follow these pathways that are kind of the safest pathways because they don't feel like they have the finance and business skills but can find themselves in situations where they don't have the autonomy that they want or, or feel disempowered in some way to be able to create that life in medicine that they want. And so a lot of my work in terms of early med school education, residency education really focuses on getting that solid sort of sense of both business and finance and being honest with yourself about what it is that you want from your career so that you have the ability to take the route that you want such that you don't burn out so early in the process. Good point. And I know we usually cover a lot about medical education in this show, and obviously that's something we want to get to and get some of your tips about radiology clerkships and just preparing for that sort of specialty. But with your groups here and with the financial education and everything else, there's a lot of work-life balance and how to just manage all these different categories of our life, even earlier on as a medical student. So I guess one of the ones that you discuss a lot that I'd like to know more about is just the current and the changing landscape in medicine and especially for women in medicine. Yeah. So, I mean, I think we're really shifting into an age of consolidation in medicine and we're seeing a lot of different players entering the field, right? Healthcare is a $4 trillion industry. There's a lot of people who want to put their hands in that bucket. And I think it's really important for physicians to kind of know where exactly it is that they fit into that landscape and really be able to take charge of that, know their worth in that space and, and ask for it. Because I think what I see so often is that a lot of physicians find themselves being regulated by all these different things, whether it's an employer, whether it's an insurance company, whether it is patient reviews, all of these things that obviously factor into how the healthcare landscape works and have their own roles, but at the end of the day, should not get in the way of good patient care. And I think that that is so important for us to really be able to have the knowledge base and the ability to navigate this landscape, not only for ourselves and the sake of our burnout, but for the sake of our patients, right? So I think it's really important when you look at women in medicine, or you look at just, I mean, and I don't think that this is just exclusive to women in medicine, but I think there's a lot of great examples of trends that can be, you know, projected to the entire physician population. If you look at sort of what's happening in a much more tangible way amongst women physicians. And the fact is, is that within five years of completing training, 40% of female physicians will either cut back significantly or actually leave medicine entirely. And I think that that's really, really scary. If you look at the fact that over 50% of currently enrolled medical students are female, and you think about the fact that 40% of them statistically are gonna cut back or leave medicine entirely, that's a real problem, not only from a personal standpoint, but like a real health policy problem in the, in the question of who's gonna take care of patients in this country going forward. And so, I think it's really, really important for women physicians and everyone else to really be looking at career longevity as something that they really need to be able to emphasize. 
and they've got to make decisions accordingly. And they've got to understand the financial side of things such that they can make those numbers work, right? Because a lot of times what we'll see with female physicians is they can't make those numbers work and they can't make themselves reconcile the financial side of their situation with the job that they want to have the professional satisfaction. And I think that that's happening again, not just amongst female physicians, but can really be exacerbated in those early years as female physicians struggle to kind of balance their need to start a family and their desire to be there for their patients and also be there for their children. And I think, you know, we get to these points where there become these decision points and very clear exit points when those things come into conflict. So being aware of that from the beginning and understanding how you're going to address those challenges when they come up in a way that's, you know, consistent with your priorities and your personal goals is really important. I was wondering if you had more insight on like the reason I hadn't heard that statistic before. So that's very interesting. And you can always figure that family is definitely going to play a role in all physicians' lives later on. Obviously, there are going to be different impacts, whether you're a male or a female physician due to the different responsibilities and all that. So also the concern of physician shortages in a lot of area, this sort of amplifies this current concern as you were stating. So I guess question for you would be for the audience is how do you plan for that? How do you know how to get that proper work-life balance when a lot of the future of your career, you just can't really predict that accurately? Yeah. I mean, I think the one thing, if I had to sort of like put out the most important thing that I put out there in terms of family is just understanding there is no perfect time. And I think that for all of us, we're used to being told this is the time to do this. And it's very, very compartmentalized. And when it comes to family, there really just is not a perfect time, right? The world does not stop and just magically open up and say, okay, this is your window. This is your, you know, ultimately life is complicated. Life in medicine is hard. Having a baby during med school, having a baby during residency, having a baby during fellowship and having a baby during you know, when you're in attending, they have all got their own unique challenges and they've all got their own good points as well. Right. I mean, I think in some ways it was a lot easier for me to have my baby during residency than it was for me to have the baby that I had during my first year as an attending. And people would always tell me, oh, you should wait, you should wait. You shouldn't have a baby until you're an attending. You know, you've got to focus on your training, but actually I really do feel that the pressure on me as a resident was a lot less than the pressure on me as a first year attending. And I think ultimately at the end of the day, I watched so many friends make these decisions kind of based on what other people told them that they should do. And it may or may not have been right for their families. And also, you know, I mean, I think we also know as physicians that the later that you put those things off, the more challenges you may have having the family that you want. And so really, I think when you're ready, you're ready and the rest of the world will figure itself out. And of course, that's not just for babies. That's for anything that you're doing with your life and any goals that you have, right? There's never a right time to get married. There's never a right time to start a family. There's never a right time to go part-time. There's never a right... I mean, you could make arguments in a million different directions. And I think being really honest with yourself about what it is that you want is going to prevent a lot of that resentment that people get towards their careers later when they feel as though they've sacrificed a lot to get there. And then, you know, things didn't work out or they hold their jobs responsible for them not being able to have what they want personally. And I think that that, I think you got to have faith in the fact that when there's a will, there's a way. And I certainly think that that has played out in my own life and hopefully 
as you ask and if you're honest with people and can find people that will give you honest advice later on down the road, they'll probably tell you the same thing. They'll say there really wasn't a great time. We just kind of made it happen and you should just make it happen. If you know you want to do something, the rest of the world will figure itself out. There are so many differences with your specialty, with the demographics of your area, with your current family size, with everything else that you can't really account for all at once. So I guess, as you're saying, just have a plan, but have a lot of backups too, because you're not sure where it's going to take you exactly. Yeah, I think I was always one of those people, right, that I had this plan in my life of when I was going to get married, when I was going to have my first child, when I was going to have my second child, you know, everything was just kind of planned out. And I'll tell you, like, none of those things happened on the time frame that I thought that they were going to happen on. Some happened earlier, some happened later. And, you know, at the end of the day, I wouldn't trade any of it at all. And I think that had I made the decision to delay things because of my career, I think I would have been really resentful about that later. And so, I remember when I got pregnant with my first child, I got a lot of kickback from my residency program and people, not necessarily from the leadership in my residency program, but just people around me during residency, whether they were my co-residents, whether they were attending physicians, where a lot of people were just kind of like, this is not the right time. You're going to fail your boards. This is going to be a big problem. And you're just not prioritizing your career. And ultimately, you know, I guess I've always sort of marched to my own drumbeat and I did my own thing and it worked out just fine. I think you have to have faith in the fact that you've got a lot of skills. And I think having that faith in yourself is just really important and saying, you know what, I've been successful in so many other realms of life. I'll figure out a way to make this work. Like if this is something I want, I'm going to do it. And, you know, the worst case scenario is never that bad, right? Let's say I had failed my boards, which I didn't, by the way, I did perfectly fine on them. But let's say that I had could always take the boards again, right? I mean, it would not have been the worst thing in the world had I had done that. But let's say for whatever reason, I hadn't had a baby the year that I had had the baby and then I'd had, and then something had happened, right? Life happens. We're doctors. We know better than anyone that, that life happens. And so, you know, you never want to go back and look back and say, Hey, I didn't do this. And now I regret it. And so I was really happy. And if anything, I felt like my son really kept things in perspective for me when things got stressful at the job search where I always had something to kind of go home to and level me. And I think it was really good for me to have my baby when I did. So there's never a perfect time. I think that it's really important if you start thinking about how you're going to be happy in medicine to not constantly be depriving yourself of things in the interim. And I think that a lot of us kind of already feel that we gave up a large part of our 20s towards our medical careers and to perpetuate that cycle even further is not great. Agreed. Lots of different things to consider. Did you know you can find and schedule your own clinical rotations? Students can reach out to preceptors nationwide and schedule their own rotations. You can even refer a friend, earning you credit towards clinical externships of your choosing. Go to findarotation.com for more information. That's Find a Rotation, your medical and healthcare clinical rotations platform. And I guess one of the last main topics here for the work-life balance that we're going to cover is just sort of the finances of it. Do you recommend closer along the lines of personal finance recommendations for early med students, or is it more the entrepreneurship or kind of a mixture of both? I think that both skills are really, really important. I think that I've been advocating for more business and finance education from the get-go. I mean, 
I honestly think the way that finance is taught in this country is sort of a travesty. I think that basic personal finance should be a part of high school even, right? I think the number of people who come out of high school not knowing how to do something like balance a checkbook is is really shameful in terms of just how we prepare people to deal with their financial lives after they're done with their education. So I don't necessarily think that it's isolated to medicine, but the problem in medicine becomes you do on average have a larger debt burden than most other professions. And you also are making more money than most professions. And when you put both of those things together, where your expectations can be if you don't understand fundamentals of personal finance and just understanding, for example, compounding interest, right? I talked to so many residents who are kind of like, okay, I've got $350,000 in student loans, but it's okay. Like, you know, I've heard that the average earnings in my specialty are $230,000. So I'll pay off those loans in two or three years. And they just don't understand how those numbers work. And so those expectations and the challenges that come as you realize that those are not realistic expectations, it can really mess with your financial future at an early age. And so I think it's really important for us to be telling medical students and residents just, you know, what is the effect that having a very expensive cup of coffee on a daily basis can have for you long-term and what can it prevent in the future? And that's a very like trivial, small example, but it is kind of amazing to see if you translate that to also, you know, what does it mean if I eat out and what does it mean if I incur credit card debt and what does it mean if I'm just constantly taking out personal loans and things like that, just assuming that I'm going to have the power to pay them back and not understanding what those numbers are going to look like and the challenges that they're going to pose later on in your career and what they're going to do to your ability to have that work-life balance is really important, right? So if you come out of training and you somehow have amassed, let's say, five hundred to $600,000 in debt, both in the student loan space and the personal loan space, and you just think that you're going to be able to pay it back very easily, all of a sudden you're very tied to your primary job as a source of income. And every time that you are working for the dollar instead of working for the passion, you start introducing a lot of issues with you know, the ability to walk away from a bad situation, the ability to live life on your terms, the ability to cut back hours if you feel as though you need to focus on your family or to focus on something else that you wanna focus on or just because you've decided you don't wanna work 60 hours a week and that's not something that's going to contribute to your career longevity. But if you've got these huge amounts of debt hanging over you and don't have a good sense of money management and how to save money for retirement and all of these other very basic things, you're going to find yourself in a position where a decade into your attending life, you're not going to necessarily be where you want to be financially. And I think that that can be really, really frustrating for early career physicians. So I think it's very, very important that we get those messages out to our trainees as early as possible. Yeah, those so-called golden handcuffs, you really get stuck in where you're at making the amount of money you're making because you already have so much expenses that you couldn't take a cut in pay or time or anything like that. And the interesting thing with the student loans is that they're not always intuitive. There are so many different programs out there. It can be very complex, very complicated, even if you have some basic understanding of personal finance. So there are really great resources out there that students can use, and hopefully we can give them some at the end of this. But I do want to touch on the medical education aspect too, because you're a radiologist, and that is a highly competitive specialty. 
So I'm curious for those that might be interested in going into that, what are some things that they could do maybe to prepare for their clerkships? Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in a good old-fashioned textbook. I'm sure that there are many other much more technologically savvy ways to equip yourself for these rotations earlier. But I think really just kind of getting a good foundation on the things that you should be looking for in these things is really, really important. So I think that, you know, if you walk into a radiology rotation as a completely clean slate, you're going to miss out on a lot of learning opportunities that you could have unless you actually kind of have the background reading to say, hey, what is the differential diagnosis in these cases? What are the things that I should be looking for that could be different in one case versus the other that could really say it's pointing towards one thing versus the other? And so I think that it's really important to do as much background reading on, you know, just pick up a basic radiology book that just gives you like radiology 101, how to look for a fracture, how to look at a chest x-ray, a systematic approach to looking at abdominal CT. And I think that once you have that kind of basic method, you'll be able to pick up a lot more because a lot of people, I mean, I know from my radiology rotation, I didn't actually love radiology that much just from my radiology rotation, because a lot of times you are sitting there watching somebody else scroll. And unless you have sort of the background to assess what it is that they're scrolling through and what it is that they're looking for, then you're just waiting for them to point out a finding to you. And that's just a lot less fun than going through the whole thing as a puzzle and kind of saying, okay, I'm going to start with a clean slate, you know, in my clinical history, here are the things in my head that I might be looking for. Now, as I'm scrolling, I'm going through my method, I'm making sure I don't miss anything. And I'm looking at the images myself. I think that that's what I love about radiology is really the ability to do that process, not just to focus on the finding. And so I think that a lot of people who really enjoy their radiology rotations are focused on things like that, where they're actually really going through the images in the same way with the same eyes as their attendings are. Obviously not as experienced, but going through that same method and understanding kind of the puzzle that is radiology and how you're putting all the pieces together instead of just, okay, yeah, I see a fracture. Because I think they can get really boring sitting in that back seat, you know, three chairs down from the attending and looking at an x-ray when when you don't know what you're looking for and you don't know how to approach it. So I know a lot of people are really turned off by their radiology rotations at the beginning. So like I sat in a dark room, I tried not to fall asleep and I waited for someone to say something to me. <laughs> and that's hopefully not how the attendings are approaching the rotation. But, you know, there's obviously also work that needs to get done. And so for you to get the most out of your rotation, you want to put that work in ahead of time so that you're also looking at the images simultaneously and getting what you can out of them and hopefully being able to ask the questions that come up to you when you're looking at those images as well. And it might be that you say, hey, that looks really weird. And the attendant's like, oh, no, that's just a normal variant. But at least you know to ask that question because you know what your baseline is supposed to be and you're seeing things that stick out from that baseline. And that was the other point I wanted to ask about was the exams because it's sometimes difficult to know exactly what types of materials in radiology, which types of images that are going to be more high yield. So I know a lot of people are just going to recommend doing as many QBank questions as possible. Do you think that's a good method of attack for? specifically imaging on exams or is there a better technique or resource out there? Yeah, I mean, I think for radiology and probably very similar to other specialties, obviously the more you see, the more likely you are to see in a question on an exam that says, 
you know, where you're going to be able to tie it into something that you saw clinically and say, oh, I know that case. I've seen that before. Right. And so the more images that you can get your eyes on, whether they're in textbooks, whether they're clinically, when you're looking at studies and really the more of these case review type situations, whether they're online or whether they're in books are really, really important. I know that I use the case review series very heavily during my radiology clerkships to kind of see the thing, you know, and the thing is, is with radiology, I guess, for exam purposes, you really need to be looking at those zebras. It's interesting because your clinical rotation may not be the best preparation for your actual examination. And I wouldn't say that for a specialty like internal medicine, where I feel very strongly that your best preparation for that exam is really just showing up to your rotation every day and paying attention. Obviously in radiology, you're going to see a lot of normals when you're going through a stack of studies. And that's a good thing, right? We don't want all of our patients having pathology, <laughs> but it's, it's a little bit different than an inpatient medicine rotation where they're there for a specific pathologic purpose and working that up and you're going through it. So you're seeing cases all the time. In radiology, we see a lot of normals. And so it's important to know what normal looks like when you're going to be a practicing radiologist. But for exam purposes, you really have to know what abnormal looks like. And that requires probably looking at some of these question banks in a lot of detail because there's a good chance you're not going to see that particular case on your exam. I do think that it's really important to look at those review books when it comes to radiology. That even if you're a radiology resident taking your board exams, that's still the case. So (laughs) certainly the case during medical school. And then if someone was thinking about maybe going into radiology, but they're having trouble with their specialty selection, are there like the top high yield things that they should look for or ask themselves to make sure it's a good fit? Yeah. I mean, I think that choosing a specialty is just, it's such a personal decision and viewing it from any eyes that, you know, I think that unlike a lot of other things in life, it's really one of those situations where you really have to stand back and take that 30,000 foot view and say, what are all the things that I need to be happy in my career and which specialties really match up with those deal breakers and match up with those high points in terms of saying, I've got the best chance of success here. So it can't just be about what's the lifestyle that I want. It can't just be about what's the material that I like the best. It can't just be about how much you're going to make in that specialty. You have to put all of those things together. So I think for radiology, for me, I wish that I could say that I went into it for the right reasons. I think for me, I was at the time when I was making my specialty decision, I was engaged to someone who had their heart set on being a cardiothoracic surgeon, which That also changed. My husband ended up switching to plastic surgery. And so, you know, but at the time I thought I was going to be married to a cardiothoracic surgeon. I had this vision of what his life was going to look like. And I had this vision of what our life as a dual physician family was going to look like. And family had always been really important to me. And so I really wanted a specialty that had a lot of flexibility within it. And at the time when I was making my decision, everybody thought that life was just going to go to teleradiology. That was a very clear trend at that time. And fortunately, that hasn't played out. And we still have a lot of radiologists that are on site working in groups and in traditional settings. But at the time, that was sort of the thing. You know, everybody's going to be able to work remotely. Everybody's going to be able to work whatever hours they want. And they're going to have these algorithms where you can just kind of pick your hours and you'll be able to do what you want. And so in my mind, I had always been one of those people that liked all of my rotations. I had a few rotations that I didn't like, but there were a lot of things that I felt like I knew that I would be perfectly happy doing. And so radiology was one of those things where I was like, I love like the anatomy and I love the physiology and I love kind of being a part of that puzzle. 
solving process. And so I'll like radiology, but it wasn't like it was my one true love by any means. It was just, it fit all the boxes in terms of career flexibility, as well as interest in the subject matter. And then fortunately, once I entered residency and I got to be the person actually working through the cases myself, I found out that I actually truly loved it. But that wasn't, you know, if I'm being honest, it wasn't the decision clincher back in medical school. Because I think it's actually pretty hard to know what life as a radiologist is like when you're in medical school, because you don't get to work through cases yourself. Usually you're usually watching somebody else do the work. So that is definitely the issue with most of the rotations, minus probably the most experience you're going to get, like you mentioned, was something like internal medicine, inpatient. That's going to be the closest rotation to the actual experience. A lot of the others, it's quite difficult to tell. And even if you could tell very accurately from the rotation, you might not be able to secure a rotation in all the different specialties you want to try out. It's just not enough time, not enough resources. So <laughs> there's a lot of unknowns all throughout medicine and after, I suppose. Absolutely. I think just having fun during your rotations and really trying to get your hands in as much stuff as possible, really try to, you know, I know it's so exhausting as a medical student to be keeping up with your reading and want to stay so engaged in your clinical work and be there for everything. But I think, you know, the people that I've seen end up the happiest with their specialty choices are the people who really tried to do as many rotations and sub-eyes and things like that in the field that they were going to go to so that they really went in eyes wide open about what to expect. Great tips. Well, do you have any other parting thoughts for the audience? My biggest thing right now, I've been doing a lot of pre-med mentoring, and I think that there are just so many people discouraging people from going into medicine. And this is, you know, obviously your audience has already made the decision to go to medical school. And so hopefully they've kind of gotten past that juncture. But for any of you that are feeling like you're hearing all this stuff about burnout and kind of wondering if you've got some buyer's remorse or should have chosen differently, I think that medicine is actually such a wonderful field. And I think the heart of what we do is so amazing that it is really important to kind of just at this stage in your career, like just take out all of the noise in terms of burnout and all the other things that people are saying about the healthcare landscape. The fact is, is that healthcare is just changing very, very rapidly on a daily basis. And what healthcare is going to look like even five years from now or 10 years from now, when you get out of residency is going to be very different than what it looks like right now. And so, you know, don't worry about the things that you can't change right now. Focus really hard on being the best physician that you can be. And then hopefully we've found the system is not sustainable the way that it is right now. And so people are actively changing. And hopefully by the time that it's your turn to be out there and doing things, we will have changed some things for the better for you. So, you know, just don't focus on that. Everything in a profession is based on supply and demand economics and things can only get so bad before things swing in the other direction. And all of these things have cycles. So if you're hearing a lot of advice, encouraging you to get out or to do something else with your MD or whatever, don't do that right now. Focus on being the best doctor you can be and you'll find a pathway that works for you later on. I guess the only constant is change. Yes, absolutely. Where can the audience find out more about you and your groups? Yeah, I mean, if you just go to my self-titled website, it's not very original. It's just www.nishamethamd.com. And that will link you to my groups. It'll link you to a lot of my other work and a lot of my writing, things like that. So 
that's probably the easiest way to get connected to all the different things that I'm doing. Well, Dr. Anisha Mehta, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure to be here. Good luck, everyone. The Rounds to Residency podcast is powered by Med School Coach. To access Med School Coach services, like USMLE tutoring or residency admissions advising, visit our website at medschoolcoach.com. Good luck as you prepare for your board exams, and we hope you tune in again next time.